This episode is sponsored by Arc IT, and you'll find out more about them later on in the episode. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. Today, I'm speaking with Roderick Bates, who is the head of integrated practice at Enscape. Previous to Enscape, Roderick was a principal at Kieran Timberlake in the research group, which was charged with using ecological, economic, climate, social, and site data to drive informed, sustainable design. In this conversation, we cover topics including his interesting path to architecture and technology through sustainability, the importance of lateral thinking, why architects need to care about the ethical outcomes of the projects they work on, the general challenge of communication that architects face, and how he's applying his scientific and research approach to the field of visualization and, more specifically, real-time rendering at Enscape. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Roderick Bates. Roderick, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have well, you. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Great to be here. Yeah, this is uh, it, so far, I mean, didn't hit record early enough, but we've had a fascinating conversation. You have a fascinating story. And so I am going to beg you to repeat some of that. <laughs> and and I mean, that's actually the whole point of this podcast is to get these memorialized so that these conversations do have the ability to get beyond just the two of us because you know that doesn't happen enough i don't think in the architectural sphere and in probably in a lot of other places but i can control this one so i like that mentality and i think that's true there's so many people that we encounter and so many projects that designers encounter over the course of their lives that have an amazing backstory and it's always hidden so getting those stories out i think is is one of the the great things that's sort of enabled by technology absolutely in the internet age Sure. And and I remember starting the podcast like ten years ago, a different podcast, and and it was always like, well, you got to go back and listen to those to get the the pieces out of it. But now with with technology, there's tools out there that will just automatically transcribe everything that's ever said and make it searchable. To me, that was always kind of the downfall of this type of media or video was that it wasn't searchable. Like, and so my I developed online courses, and I would end up breaking them into the smallest snippets possible. So that somebody didn't have to scrub through an hour of video to find that one piece they were looking for. Now you can, you don't even have to worry about all that anymore. <laughs> well, it's true. Of course, you lose context and context matters enormously um, in, the, in the world of design, but that's absolutely true. But it does bring to mind this idea of how the, uh, the tools and the medium begins to define the message in some way, shape, or form. And maybe we shouldn't just be trying to, to go for those Bon Mo's. But rather the, the really that communication of of the larger whole and the larger context, because really that's that's the world in which we operate is is that yeah, uh, composite. Absolutely, and and to me that is the benefit. Like you don't have to get hyper efficient about all of these little tiny pieces because they don't stand alone. They do require each other, and and a lot, especially if you're teaching a course, it's building blocks. It's Legos that you're snapping on top of each other. And yes, you can go back through the directory and find the videos that came before. But the way those flow together is often important. You you kind of have to go through the whole thing before you go back and find those little pieces that you missed, maybe. 
Oh, I like that. That's true. And I, of course, I always find one of the most remarkable things about my life is that I, I remember things very differently than, than the search history might indicate when I go back. <laughs> it's true. And I was like, oh, I remember this being laid out perfectly as, as a, a cogent argument. And then I go and try to search and find all those nuggets. And I guess my brain has assembled the argument through that, that composite whole, as opposed to just picking out um, those individual pieces. You're right. That's absolutely the way that we think. And also, that's the way that we experience our environments. Um, it's interesting to think about architecture as a profession that one that has to operate on this dual level of incredible hyper detail, you know, specifications and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. literally detailing. And then at the same time, of course, you know, how are buildings experienced? Well, oftentimes they're experienced from afar as, you know, trying to get that aha moment um, or that, that sort of that stunning moment when you see a beautiful structure, you know, you're not looking at the waterproofing detail, uh, but you're experiencing it as this magnificent whole. Yeah. And so, and, and everything in between. Yeah, that 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 is the spectrum. And I, I was recently talking to some people. I'm going to be th- this episode will come out after this happens, but going to be talking to the American Institute of Architects students. And that's one of the questions I've been posing to some different architects who have been in practice for a long time who do understand that whole continuum. And just saying, knowing what you know now, what would you tell a student today to empower them as they move into this profession? To not necessarily try to continue the profession the way that it is, but but make it what it needs to be to have some agency in that process to empower their kind of potential that they they have this kind of unlimited potential and one to enable them to see that in themselves, but two to like actually give them the agency to give into this provide contribute into this system to make it what it needs to be because i i think a lot of times we go into the profession thinking it's going to be a one way a lot of times it's not just like that and and never really taking the opportunity to kind of tap those people who have been there and would just say you know if i was going to do it again what would i do a little bit differently well, that's always a challenging one. So what have you heard? What have people said they would do differently? Because I know that there's one old hand at the last firm that I worked at who always said that specifications is a design tool. And I mean, he practically had it you know, tattooed on the back of his hand. But that it was a great one because it's one of the perhaps the most prosaic and I wouldn't want, don't want to say necessarily boring, but you know, it's not the, the thing you think about when you think of uh, architecture, particularly in popular culture. But it is the foundation by which you know, good architecture actually happens when it comes to construction in many ways. But so that was probably would be his is, you know, think hard about specifications. But I'm curious what else you've heard. I've talked about that a lot on, on the other show, which is, you know, there's design at all aspects of a project, no matter how you're contributing. No, if you're drawing, if you are the one drawing the toilet details, like there is design in there. If you are the one doing the specifications, there's design in there. And I think everybody has to care. One of the one of the recent ones that comes to mind that was said was you have more power than you think you do and to push. And so it's not like just push wildly, but but don't just accept, especially when somebody says, you know, this is the way we've always done it. Those are kind of some dirty words in architecture because they are on some level. There, there's two sides to that, right? There's the one side, which is. Like we do it like this for a good reason, and here's my experience behind that. And then there's also the side which is we're going to blindly continue to do it this way because that's the way we've always done it, and it's efficient, and you know, et cetera. So it was like you need don't just st- sit back and take it. 
you've got to push, you've got to push and push so that you can get to the reasons behind those kind of fast answers. And if you can help take those to the next place. I like that for two reasons. One is this idea of, of pushing, not hard, but gentle and consistently. And I think that's something that I've absolutely been a, uh, a firm believer in. And that's one of the things I've noticed is that for some people that can be really disheartening to have to push sometimes for years to, to get to an outcome that they are, are desiring. But I think that's all right, because if you push too hard, then you're going to push people away, um, essentially. And that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to bring people with you. But the other question I would have is, how do you know which direction you should be pushing in? You know, what is the way in which you know that something isn't right or, or needs to be improved? And I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges, that, that very first piece, because that's what gives you the motivation. Yeah, and that's where that experience does come in. That does take time to foster. It is a, it is a weird, delicate dance that kind of happens for each individual throughout the, their career. And yeah, it's interesting. The, the, the industry, to me, seems like it is at a place where it is more, I hope, open to better than it ever has been before. And I, I see this in, I don't know if you saw that recent article just came out. It'll be old news by the time this comes out. But the New York Times did an article on the, uh, I guess it was shop architects. It was specifically some architects working there on potentially unionizing because of overtime uh, for the most part, right? And this is an architectural issue. This is not yeah. just a, a single firm issue. But, you know, just thinking about the way that obviously this happens in school, that's where it starts. That's where a, a lot of the architects who own firms are teaching in schools that are kind of devaluing the val devaluing your time on a project. And then there's also professors that have nothing to do with practice who are kind of falling in that same line, which is if there's time available, spend it working on this project. And then that, that's exactly what's going to happen when you get out into the into the business as well which is, you know, you're going to work 100 plus hours a week on a project. You're going to get paid a salary to do that. And it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens consistently throughout the profession. Some firms handle this way better than others, but there's a, I think there's just people saying, you know what, it's, we're done with that. And to me, that's kind of an interesting time in architecture that we are now finally maybe at that point where you're actually seeing an article about that in the New York Times. Everybody's known about this in the industry forever. But now you're seeing the New York Times kind of reporting and exposing it, you know. In, in it's true. I, we have uh, where I live. There's a number of people that are on their way to becoming you know, full blown doctors and are going through the residency, and that's actually a similar system in a lot of ways because they're working just crazy hours. Um, huge, huge amount of sympathy for them, and it's one in which obviously the compensation is fairly modest, but the end goal is one in which you are, are merging as a medical professional with an incredible level of experience. So it's almost, a, I wouldn't say it's quite like a hazing, but it's sort of a rite of passage, if you will. And I think that the, in that one, there's a lot of justifications around health, safety, and welfare. And I wonder if there is a similar sensitive sensitivity, um, of course, with architecture being that sort of, you know, part of the oath of health, safety, and welfare, that the idea of these long hours is a rite of passage. And I wonder if we're seeing a generation for whom, like, you know, they're just not going to play that game anymore, like you were saying, and they don't see the value of it. And I think that there's certainly in practice a lot of 
carrying of design options and and noodling through of ideas that doesn't necessarily derive value. Um, it's just it's a churn. What are the opportunities to start to to hone in and, and achieve efficiency? And you think of things like the promise of BIM or or AI in the context of design, or you know, using various parametric tools, and all of them ideally should be focused on expediting a design process so that you don't have to have that 100 hours of a week of churning through ideas, but rather you can have 40 hours, but you have the machines doing the other 60. And I think uh, that would be the ideal. Absolutely. And there's people who look at standards as handcuffs, and there are people who look at standards as freedom. The kinds of things that you're talking about, where you, if if the tools can do certain things well to free you up to do meaningful things that that only you can do, that to me is a lot more interesting, compelling way to frame it than to, than just to say we're not doing it just for efficiency's sake. That is a good outcome, right? To get more efficient, so that we can spend more time doing the things that we want to do. Um, but also just enabling us to provide our value where it's best used. Well, you said yeah, yeah and maybe the it's best used uh, doing things that you care about, like you were saying. You know, you know, it's bathroom details. If you can care about it. That matters. So maybe that's maybe that's the split. It's it's not just it's not the boring stuff that you're having the machines do. It's the stuff that you just don't care about. Um, and then you can put that passion into the things that you do. And I think for, for anyone that's looking forward to a career of you know forty plus years, having that passion and be able to maintain it is critical. Because otherwise, it it does become just drudgery. And also, when I think about any building that I'm in, I don't want to think that the person who designed it saw it as just drudgery to design this building. So I almost feel like it can permeate the space, if you Absolutely. will. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think about that, too. I think about do, when do you do your best work? And there's tons of science and studies behind this. It's uh, you're spending If you're spending long hours working on something, you are absolutely not doing your best work. And I, I think a lot of the times the p- kind of projects we're talking about here, when you're talking about architecture, it's not all buildings, right? But it's it's buildings that I think fall in the category of buildings that matter. It needs to have an intention behind it that is of the kind of thing you're talking about, a passion for what the outcome is and and who it's for and what those need to be needs to happen when you're in the best mind space that you can be in. Otherwise, I think a lot of that stuff does come through in the final product if it if it's malintentioned or if you're if you are not sleeping right period then uh, it's it's hard to get a great outcome when there is this suffer fest behind the scenes exactly and you can definitely see there's some sort of efficiency curve and i I know that there were many people um, within the field of, of architecture that always want to measure efficiency of design. And uh, one of the things I can say for sure, though, is on a few projects in the past is we looked at change orders and things like that for different projects and relative to, say, the conditions during the design process. And there is certainly a relationship there. So maybe you have situations in which productivity remained consistent, but the quality declined. And I certainly have seen examples where that's the case. And do you want to be known for how productive you are? Or do you want to be known for the, the reputation based on the outcomes that you provided as, as solutions to the client. I think that the client cares about getting a building on budget <laughs> that meets their, their design criteria, right? And I don't think from their perspective, your efficiency doesn't really matter. It's just expected. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, okay, so we've already started off on a, on a huge digression, but I I wanted to kind of get back to this original story and this, your story of how you got to where you are. You're, you're currently at Enscape, and you have a, a, I don't know, it's a non-typical path. Like you said, you're not an architect. So can, can give us a, a synopsis on your kind of origin story or this path that you've gotten to where you are, and, and then we can get into what your, your current interests are. Well, there's nothing anyone likes more than talking about themselves, so um, I can go for it there. And, and I'll, I'll start the story a little bit later in the process, but maybe it's worthwhile to note that, you know, you, you don't, this wasn't my first career within this field. I actually was working in an outfit that did uh, technology licensing, and it was one of the, it was really a, you know, sales type job that was an extreme high pressure, and it became one of these situations where I thought, okay, now's the time to, to look, take stock and say, what do you really want to do? And one of the things I had always been very interested in is essentially what I refer to as the built environment and humans' intervention in the built environment, and how can that be structured and manipulated in such a way to to yield positive environmental outcomes? Because uh, otherwise, you just do things the way, like you're saying, the way you always do them, and and then you all of a sudden have a situation where um, you know maybe an ecosystem is is incredibly disrupted, or or people don't have an environmental benefit to enjoy. So with that thinking, I ended up going to the uh, Yale School of Forestry, which is now the Yale School of Environment, started a, a program there. It was really sort of a build-your-own program because there it's not traditional forestry that I was interested in, but it was really one that was about understanding, like I say, the built environment and how to manipulate the human intervention to yield positive outcomes. So I had a professor that said, well, you know, what you're into is a little different, but I happen to know an architecture firm that, that likes to think laterally, and uh, they might be interested in what you have to offer here. So I, I would recommend you go have a chat with them um, when it comes time for an internship. So that ended up being Kieran Timberlake Architects down in Philadelphia. So I went down there for an interview and really found that you know, they were incredibly open-minded. You know, they wanted to have their projects perform across a broad array of criteria at the highest possible levels. And they recognized that that meant going outside of architecture and the knowledge that resides within architecture to do that. You had to bring in expertise from elsewhere. So they thought, well, let's let's take a gamble here. So I ended up doing an internship there that ended up being a, a fantastic experience. I worked under their first research director, a gentleman by the name of Kevin Pratt, with whom uh, you know he really provided that that early mentorship to help me understand what it really meant to work at an architecture firm, how architects thought, what mattered when to design the building and, and what didn't, at least in his opinion. And we ended up also creating a process by which we would really understand the context in which we were designing our buildings and use that understanding of context to inform the design. Can I butt in here for a second? Sure. I'm wondering how that kind of exposure to the way architects think in, in air quotes, because I think most people who probably listen to this podcast went to architecture school, which is not a school of forestry. Like how eye-opening or how different from what you were used to experiencing was that? It was fun for me because I got to work across the full spectrum. Um, so I remember that summer I was going through boxes of specifications to create a interpretive display for a school that we had designed. So I really got to understood that the absolute detail that goes into buildings. So for me, that was a huge eye opener because I, I think when most people think of architecture, they just think of the fun stuff. You know, they think of, of you know, Frank Gehry and, and some 
sort of uh, fanciful uh, waving of the arms and, and beautiful buildings, um, you know, the star architect stuff. They don't think about that absolute detail that is required. You know, the 20 boxes of ME, you know, MEP specifications and, you know, the how many coatings of paint are going to go on something and all this kind of stuff. So for me, that was a huge eye-opener on what it really takes to to design and build a building. The other thing that I thought that was a, a real surprise was the passion of all of the people that worked there. No one was there because they didn't care. Or if they didn't care, they weren't there that long. It seemed like everyone took the opportunity to create something that had a, a degree of permanence um, in the, the physical environment as almost an honor and something that they were incredibly passionate about. You know, They really put themselves in these buildings and saw themselves in those buildings. So for all of them, the opportunity to see these things built, what they were working on and see their little part of the contribution there was incredibly important. And that's something that the firm absolutely recognized. I remember when they uh, were ever featured in a magazine, they put the whole team there in the credits. You know, It wasn't just the, the principals or the partners or what have you. It was everyone and anyone that had worked on it. Um, and I think that really reflects how the, the everyone felt. And so for me, that was novel because in my prior professional experience, you know, you're you didn't have that level of personal contribution um, to the projects and that, and that investment. So for those were probably the two biggest surprises, that level of detail and nuance that goes into things. And then the other piece being that the passion of the people that work there. It is incredible to think about the amount of effort that goes into these projects. And it's, it's re- refreshing to hear the reverence kind of expressed for the edifice, uh, you know, the, the final deliverable. I mean, that had to, for you, coming into this part of the profession in order to, like you said, kind of manipulate how the built environment's outcomes ultimately affect these kind of bigger frameworks of forestry, of the environment, of things like that, that had to probably be refreshing for you as well to see that on display. Absolutely, because it's perfect alignment, right? You know, they they actually care about the outcome. And right. It's not just churning project through exactly. project through project because they're yeah. feeding the machine, but yeah. So if you care about the outcome, then you're going to care about all those other factors because the the manipulation or the impact in the environment is one of the outcomes. Um, so then to me, in many ways, it became a, a challenge of communication to try to achieve these goals of improving the environmental performance of buildings. It didn't, it wasn't no longer a challenge of like, well, you know, can I, how do I even convince these people? It's really, how do I communicate what I think is important? And then how do we make that something that could be rolled into the projects? So I think that was one of the, the really refreshing aspects here. And I find that universally really across the profession is that that passion to create good work is, is fairly consistent. And obviously, um, you know, there may be projects that people like to, to speak ill of. I don't know. I saw a recent design for a, a housing project in uh, UC Santa Barbara um, that's been put forward by a donor. It raised some eyebrows, but at the same time, you know, even in a project like that, you know, there's passion, there's novel ideas. And there's and that's something that I think is is one of the best parts that I learned about the industry is that that passion, I don't know if it's unique to architecture, but I certainly haven't seen it at the same level or as at least as consistently um, in other industries like I, I do in architecture. Wow. Well, sorry, I interrupted your story about... No, no, it's okay. <laughs> I was probably going on too long anyway. But uh, so anyhow, it ended up being a great experience really creating this methodology of understanding context. So go back to school, take a lot of that in professional knowledge. I felt like an old hand, you know, really understanding how architecture worked after, you know, a couple of months. And and uh, unfortunately, I got invited 
back as a full-time employee at the time uh, when my, my time at grad school was over. And it became a, a fantastic opportunity to join what was then the research group of Karen Timberlake. At that time, uh, research director Kevin Pratt, the first research director there, had left. And so they were on the hunt for a new one. They ended up hiring a University of Texas Austin uh, professor by the name of Miss Billy Faircloth, who became the research director there. A, a wonderful architect and fantastic research director. And the two of us ended up working together to really build up a, a true multidisciplinary research group. One that understood that the variety and diversity of problems that you have on every project require um, multiple skill sets. Um, you know, maybe something as as finite as maybe say electronics design to create a sensor platform, all the way through to someone that really understands building physics um, and how energy, say, flows across a building envelope. And you have to bring multiple disciplines together to really yield the, the type of outcomes that you want to deliver for your client. So. Worked there for a number of years and ended up straying into a, an interesting primary role, which is really around technology development. One in which we would have a particular project that had a really challenging problem. By way of example, we got a commission for the new London embassy uh, for the U.S. government. And one of the things that we had said during the interview process is that we would calculate the um, embodied carbon of that particular project which was great to say, and, and we ended up getting the commission, but then we actually had to follow through. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there weren't any tools to do that at the time. Right. Um, so that the responsibility for that really fell on me to say, okay, how do we make this happen? And so that ended up leading to the development of a software called Tally um, that allowed for essentially in real time in the context of someone say was designed in Revit to calculate the embodied environmental impact or the life cycle impact of the material selection decisions. It was the, really the first time that a tool like that had existed in the context of, of a modeling environment. And so it showed this example where you can have this internal problem and the internal solution that can have a real benefit to a much larger audience. Um, and that became the model of what um, I ended up doing there was trying to solve these challenging problems in architectural projects and then evaluating them for you know almost like their, their commercial or, or external potential. And then seeing that, that that process of taking these very bespoke internal fiddly tools and, and then making something that could be really accessible and, and, and foolproof um, for those external users. It was a remarkable opportunity to have that in the context of our architecture firm. And I think it really demonstrates how Kieran Timberlake took very seriously its obligation to deliver sort of an ethical outcome. Um, it wasn't just about the buildings we were building. It was also about giving the larger community the tools that we were trying to to use to deliver these better buildings. And so from there, after uh, 14 years, I was a principal at the firm, really enjoying it, but it became apparent that you know it's time to look for the next challenge and say, okay, where can I continue to grow? And maybe not um, in a situation where I'm in a design firm that is dabbling in, say, you know, software development and whatnot, and, you know, this technology and innovation, but maybe a place where really that's its core functionality. And so I ended up putting out some feelers and getting in touch with Enscape. Um, and Enscape is a, a company that is known for its real-time rendering software, but it's really also a software that allows for communication and collaboration during the entire design workflow through visualization. And they were interested in understanding how they can not only take their current product offering and really embed it more thoroughly in the design process, um, but also how can they push it in, uh, to achieve new functionality and al allow for 
their users to have different forms of analysis that could yield better design outcomes. Um, and they needed someone to, to make that happen. And I thought, well, that sounds like the kind of challenge I want next. And so uh, next thing you know, here I am, as what we call the uh, head of integrated practice at Enscape. Uh, we couldn't figure out a right way to to phrase it perfectly, but we figure that captures most of it. Yeah, I think coming from practice and moving into technology is, it's a key piece of actually making it work, right? I, you've got to be able to speak both languages. I mean, you can see a vision for where this is headed. It actually is all about communication, like you said earlier. Like, how do you how do you communicate design to the, the users, but also just how do you communicate to the different stakeholders during that process, you kind of have to be able to speak all those languages and distill it down to a communicable, easily understood essence of what you're trying to achieve there. And I feel like like that's actually the job of leadership. And when you're talking about technology as it applies to the architectural design process, you've got to bring a lot of people along with you to convince them that there is this new way of working. And what you're talking about is a new way of working. Nobody 20 years ago thought of a rendering tool as a, as a, they thought of it just as output, right? Not yeah, as a design a pretty picture tool. for yeah. you know, fundraising or what have you. It was the end of a process. And now what you're talking about is fundamentally shifting that to a much earlier phase, like the earliest phases of conceptual design to communicate in a way that people can understand, to understand the design in a way that is much different than the abstraction of cutting sections and floor plans and things like that, um, even for the person doing the design work. It kind of does cro- cut across all of these different stakeholders and you know people who are involved and processes to provide a different way of doing things. And I think, I think you think it's a better way. And and what's interesting about that then is is getting consensus and bringing people along with that because that is not an easy job in a profession that kind of getting back to our earlier conversation about doing the th- doing things the way we've always done them or we're going to continue to do it this way because this is the way we've always done it like those are dangerous words especially when you're talking about what seems like fundamentally a better way of doing things because technology has enabled that to happen. There's couple of challenges I find in the in the context of practice. But the first one, of course, is like you say, how do you communicate? And one of the things is you don't want to have to train those stakeholders to understand what you're trying to communicate to them, right? You'll spend more time training them <laughs> than actually exactly. doing it, right? And I always, I've been using the analogy of some of the models that people create, or even say like specification documents or something like that to like sheet music. There's people out there, musicians who can look at it, sheet music and hear it. I'm not one of them. I'm not, you know, I can, I, I, but I, at the same time, you play music and I can understand it, right? I can hear the beauty in it. And that's what we're really trying to do in the context of uh, real-time rendering is you're taking that much more complex data set and you're in, in absolute fidelity. Um, you know, you're not manipulating in a way that is in any way untruthful, but in, in a way that's absolutely consistent with the design intent, you're sh- changing into a format that can be or at least nearly universally understood across all these audiences. And I think that to me is is really the beauty of what real-time rendering can do. And what you do then do is you allow for that stakeholder engagement. And I, I mentioned this earlier uh, before we started recording was the, the there is a, a sense amongst um, architects is that um, you don't want the the client necessarily to play designer as is sometimes that is the terminology I've heard. And 
from my perspective, actually, that that's a little dangerous. I think there is actually a real opportunity to have all the stakeholders, whether it be the client or the people in the community, to play designers because no one has a monopoly on good ideas. And there's certainly no one that knows better about what they want personal end up using the building. They may not be able to communicate it effectively or maybe not you know, be able to understand it in a way that is easily expressed. But the beauty of something like um, with real-time rendering is that you can put them in this environment. You can allow for them to experience it. And then they can be a designer, but using a very different language and a very different way of, of communicating what they want. Um, and so from my perspective, it's a it's going to be a challenge for a lot of, of architectural firms to really embrace this idea of true stakeholder engagement in the design process. But I think that the opportunity for a positive outcome is, is huge. Let's take a short break from the conversation to talk about this episode's sponsor, ArcIT. Let's start this off with a short story. When Zach, a principal architect at CSDA Design Group, came to ArcIT, his network was hit with a ransomware attack and had been down for going on seven days, and his current IT support provider was telling him that it should be back up any day now without making any progress on getting them back up and running. When he came to ArcIT for help, they worked to recover his firm's most important project files first so he could be back up and running because they understood there are deadlines to hit. Zach's firm has now been with ArcIT for going on a year, and he couldn't be happier. So, as business owners and architects, How often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. Not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. And their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly. And enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope, because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry. Their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, Speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com arc-like architecture in the middle, and click work with us. And now let's get back to our conversation. As far as, yeah, inclusivity in the process, one of the things that I've experienced working extremely well is by doing the work, you know, it's like your old teacher used to say, show your work when you did the math. And 
so much of architecture is done behind the scenes and then presented as final product. And then you go back and work in the black box a little bit more, and then you present another step along the way. And these line up with the different quote unquote phases of design, which aren't really phases. They're more like just timestamps along the way. It's always a continuum. And it's interesting to kind of think about it as an inclusive, I don't know, enabler, right? It's an inclusivity enabler because it does kind of force an honesty. Real-time rendering does this, VR does this, where if you put the steering wheel in the client's hands and they can look wherever they want, that is much different than the system that I grew up in when designing architecture, which was a very curated view with a very wide angle lens and with transparent trees so that you could see the building. And, and now what we're talking about is a, you're in motion kind of all the time because of the way people understand space. That's how it, that's how it actually happens. They're just moving. They're looking around just like you are in the real world with a project that hasn't been built yet. And so what I mean by it forces an honesty is like, I don't just build the part that they're going to see in the final rendering because it's not just a final rendering anymore. It's an experience. And that experience means they can look behind them whenever they want. And so it forces an honesty upon the designer to build all the stuff. And it doesn't mean that it has to be quote unquote finished, but you have to be able to communicate all of this where in the past you would just communicate about the one picture we were looking at. Yeah, and the one thing that you wanted a decision from the uh, the client on, say, and it's like this yeah. is what we want. We want you to look at option A, option B. Here's the the very clear views, and the rest of it, don't worry about it. We got it covered. And now it's a situation where that that is fundamentally changing. But I think that's also changing more broadly in the context of society as a whole. Like I think people expect a level of transparency now um, more than ever. And when they don't get it, they don't, they're a little bit upset. I mean, I think that they feel like they have a valuable opinion and they should be able to voice it. They're paying for a design. They really want to see it. And I've been in plenty of design reviews where you, you provide that very curated view because the client wasn't there necessarily along that entire process. You know, it's, it's a little challenging for them to make this all of a sudden, this decision. They need that context. And that's one of the things I think that architects may find is that that this isn't a Pandora's box that all of a sudden have the client asking for design changes willy-nilly, but rather it'll be a situation in which all of a sudden that client understands context and actually instead can make very focused decisions much faster. Yeah. And they won't be surprised later, right? Like that, that is probably one of the worst situations to be in is when a client's like, what the hell is that? We've ne- I've never seen that before. And now you're caught in a situation where not only are you responsible to kind of, you know, unfold that issue, but but you're putting them in a position because they're going to be held accountable to the f- users of the building as well. And they don't want to be in a situation where those end users, the client's clients are looking at this and like, how did it end up like this? I'm looking at you, stakeholder who's been involved in the whole process, who is who is like, I never saw it before either. You, like, you can't have that situation. So, I mean, there there is a level of responsibility all the way down that I think is is for the, the expectations are a lot higher than they, they have been before. It's true. And I think what's great about that perspective is that it's not just the, the client saying, hey, how did this happen? Um, you know, it's the architect and the contractor similarly are, are in a situation where you don't want that to happen. I mean, if you find out that 
something is seriously wrong with the alignment of your building and you say, you know, you can't hang a, a curtain wall on properly or something like that. You want to know those sort of things well in advance. I mean, that's where similarly, you know, architects feel like maybe they're the masters of the universe and they know everything in the context of their design. But we find a lot of our users find enormous benefit in just walking through the building um, to understand the space themselves. Um, so even they can benefit from that type of real-time rendering, um, just as the the contractor can or the engineers. One thing we talk about in the education process is just understanding what every line that you draw means. And we're beyond the part of just drawing a line to represent something. We're actually modeling it. And so now it puts the person drawing the lines, they have the power now to visualize it in 3D and, and fully understand it. So if you're drawing a reflected ceiling plan and it's got a soffit line, it's like, it's not just a 2D line, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully it's not just a, a drafting line in Revit, right? But it's actually modeled and you can understand what's going on in three-dimensional space and it does help you make decisions and understand the outcomes of your decisions as you're making them. Yeah, one of the interesting things I found is that there are always going to be barriers um, to this. And I think a lot of the barriers come down to the perception of liability and risk. So who would have thought that real-time rendering would engender some sense of, of risk? But let's say in the context of a contractor, you know, they worry that a real-time rendering allows for um, a realistic view of what the building should look like. So if they build something that doesn't look like that, then there's going to be this misalignment that represents a risk. So there's you know little people throwing up these little roadblocks, but I think all of those are going to be eroded as people begin to understand that really this is just about more effective communication. Um, and that rarely yields a negative outcome in my experience. It, it provides more information to more people every step along the way. And I think that's kind of a thread that runs back to what you were doing at Kieran Timberlake too. It's, it's this very kind of scientific and research-based, but also forcing the design team to understand more about the project, to understand more about it now and what its outcomes will do to the environment, to the users, all of those things. That encompasses a lot of information, and but but it's empowering along the way to have that amount of knowledge at your fingertips and to that amount of understanding, which I think is also another... This is another trend. I mean, it hasn't been like this for everybody the whole time, which is we even think about it with data and, and data sources and where you're grabbing this data from, which is like this stuff is available. Some people can turn a blind eye to it, right? I, which I, it's kind of referencing what you're talking about, which is like this risk factor. Yeah. Well, it doesn't mean it's not happening though. The more I know, yeah, like the less I know, the better, right? Because, but, but yeah, doesn't mean it's not happening. And so there is kind of this empowerment that's happening because of technology and because of data, at least through exposure to what's possible and what's available out there because it is happening and it is it does have a final effect on on the outcomes of these decisions. I'll be curious to see where it shakes out. I, there's been a limited number of examples I've seen over time where people know about certain negative outcomes and they're like, you know, I just too bad. So obviously every project's always about a balance and, and that's one of the biggest challenges that any good uh, designer has is understanding what compromises are appropriate to make to achieve outcome. And honestly that that might be one of the that might be the core of what makes a really good architect is understanding how to balance all of these competing interests and make the best possible compromise. And I think the best possible compromise actually is a beautiful outcome. Not to say that it in itself is compromised, but it actually is, is very positive. 
But with real-time rendering, what it's starting to do is is allow for everyone to understand perhaps better what their their contribution is to that final whole. And and also to not allow, like you were saying, you can't shirk responsibility anymore uh, because you really are starting to make that that building tangible before it's actually constructed. And so you can think of, well, what's all the other data that could be layered on top of that type of thinking? You know, right now we're just talking about sort of the, the skin deep perspective, but there's a lot more that goes into it. And I think that's the that's the piece of what's going to happen next is when you start bringing that same type of real-time visualization to all of the other aspects that define a building during its actual operational life um, and, and, of course, its design. You know, and that's sort of getting into digital twin space. But I think that there's opportunity there that brings digital twin into a way that really engages a stakeholder, not to say the facility manager or what have you. Yeah. I mean, what what kinds of examples are you thinking about when you think about digital twin in those kinds well, of contexts rather than the facilities managers? Sure. You know, when I think about it, one of the, the fascinating things I've been tracking, there's two different trends I've been looking at with a lot of interest. One of them, and they're actually, they're quite closely related. One of them is because of my interest in the life cycle assessment of buildings, I get a really good understanding of what a building's life looks like and how materials might be replaced. And so a structure for a building is going to last its entire life. Envelope, usually pretty close to its entire life, depending upon the envelope type. But you look at other things like, say, um, interior, you know, the FF and E stuff, and that's going to be, you know, that might be for some projects like seven years. You know, we I remember working on a dormitory project where the uh, drywall was scheduled to be replaced on like under a 10 year cycle. Cause you know, students moving in and out. Yeah. Abuse basically. And, uh, and I, if you looked over the course of that building's projected life, a drywall went from being, you know, 7% of the overall impact, to like 40 something percent. I mean, this massive, we're like, my goodness, this is, this is wild. And so you begin to think about, okay, what are the implications there for, that that really high rotation components um, in the context of buildings and really be understanding what is the environmental implications associated with that. And those are decisions that aren't necessarily always made by an architect anymore. The architect's gone, right? You know, that's the interior designer. That might just be the person that, that's leasing out the space. He's like, well, we need to do carpet. What's it going to be? And those people all need data that is relevant to not just how much it's going to cost and what it's going to look like, but, you know, what's the environmental performance of this from a perspective of, say, embodied carbon or off-gassing, you know, how's this going to affect my employee health? But then there's another piece, I think, that comes along with that as well, which is about the ethics of these materials themselves. Um, you know, these aren't materials that are, are all made um, in places in which it's clearly defined. A lot of them have very global supply chains. And some of those supply chains are not necessarily ones that have the types of, of labor or environmental practices that all of us would want. Um, you know, you buy your coffee and there's a good chance you have fair trade coffee. I mean, it's almost a standard at this point. Most wood you buy probably, and a lot of it's FSC. But there is an enormous number of materials that we buy or products we buy that are, represent this composite of these uh, globally supplied materials that have very dubious um, ethical supply chains. And there is, I think, a, a huge opportunity for us to really understand that, that piece of data um, that goes into this. Because I can tell you when I pick, um, you know, maybe it's just a new sofa. I don't want to pick one that's made with inappropriate labor practices that I, I feel fundamentally and morally are wrong. And there's a good chance that I'll have no way of knowing what that is. So I think there's an opportunity for 
data to be presented to the end consumer for them to really understand both their procurement decisions, um, but also these lifecycle environmental impact decisions that really relate to how they are interacting with the building on a pretty nuanced scale. So that's just an example of where I think that there's a lot of opportunity in ways that that matter both um, ethically, um, but also matter in a way that the uh, the actual user of the building really would care about if they had that information. And it's the same thing as I was saying before. It's not like it's not happening. These things are happening, but what isn't happening is, is transparency on the data side. I, I'm wondering how this could potentially play into rendering. I mean, go, getting back to the idea of communication. Well, that's and, what it is, right? Yeah. I mean, th- to me, when you're thinking about uh, empowering people to make the right kinds of decisions later on with the data that is the outcome of the process. It's not the final building, but it is definitely a useful tool in the future. And thinking about the software that was used to create that digital environment, obviously there's a learning curve, there's there's an upkeep and a maintenance to various pieces of software. And the appetite for that, I could imagine, from the owner's standpoint, is very different than it is for the people who use it to create the the assets. So absolutely, yeah, you need to bring all of this stuff down um, from a, to a much higher level of simplicity than it exists right now. And that's one of the things that we at Enscape really value is this idea of ease of use. Um, you know, does it pass the the grandma test, so to speak? You know, can can they navigate in a model? And I think that from our perspective, on their phone, the core. right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> on a phone or can yeah. they use, you know, say uh, augmented reality to navigate it on a phone in their own house um, to understand what their options are, what the performance of these things are. And, and the beauty of it is that we all, like I say, we, we're visual creatures. We can communicate visually in a way that everyone can understand. This data doesn't have to be hidden behind some sort of opaque layers. Um, it can be one that can be communicated right there. You can see it with your own eyes something's good, bad, it aligns with your your criteria that you might have. And how all that might shake out, well, that's kind of the secret sauce of what I'm supposed to do. But you know, that from my perspective, the the visual mechanism of communication is key and the data needs out there are plentiful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well we'll leave that right where it lies right now until until you guys announce something someday in the future. I wanted to get get into a little bit of something you brought up about kind of the science behind how people interpret space and how that plays into what you guys are doing at Enscape. Can you tell a bit of that story about how, how you got to that point and why you're going down that road? And I think it, it, what it comes down to is one of my core sentiments is that it's like a sort of a trust, but verify maybe kind of a, a theme, which is that, yes, this, this is the way that we, we understand things to work intuitively, but why is that so? And maybe don't just trust that intuition, but actually um, start to to break it apart a little bit and really understand what's happening inside of that black black box. And in this I case, think, that black... Real quick, before you jump yeah. into the black box, I think that this is so important because there's so many of us, and I think we can see it when other people do it, but it's hard to see when we do it ourselves, which is, you know, this is the way I experience it, so this is the way most people must experience it too. And so this trust but verify thing, I think, is is huge and people really need to be open to this idea. Yeah, and it certainly means being open to being wrong a lot too, which you know, no one likes, but it is part of the learning process for sure. But in this case, yeah, there is always this understanding that real-time rendering it was a communication tool, but my question really was, well, why? Why is it an intuitive communication tool? Why do we think we can bring in all of these stakeholders or improve a design process? 
And so I wanted to, to take a step backwards and say, well, what's the, the essentially the cognitive science? You know, what's happening inside the black box or, or the brain of the individual through real-time rendering that allows for people that aren't trained architectural professionals to really understand the space and the designs that they're seeing? So that started a, a process of looking through some of the, the research that was out there, um, you know, going into you know, the El Selvior and whatnot, and, and looking at actual journal articles and saying, okay, what is this? What's actually happening here? And there's a couple of, of things that we found um, that we put together into a presentation that was, was pretty compelling. And one of the first ones was actually a study that looked at people that had been born blind and then through surgery had their vision restored. And they, when that happened, they used it as an opportunity to understand how essentially these adults, because they could communicate, began to make sense of their environments now that they could finally see. And what was fascinating was from that study that the way they saw was completely different from the way that we consider, you know, is normal. Um, you know, your idea of what vision being intuitive is not intuitive if you've never seen before. And one of the key findings from that study was that movement was key to generating understanding. So these individuals, they, they saw things maybe as a monolithic shape, whereas we who are, are experiencing see them as multiple objects. And it was only through movement that they began to discern shapes as actually, say, being separate units and not necessarily one, one large composite. Like an assembly um, of, some, of pieces. Exactly. You know, so okay. I'm looking at, say, you know, um, in, in the background here of, of of your screen, I can see, like, say, a guitar, and I understand that there's strings and, and a neck and things like that. But for them, it's just it's just one thing, uh, which is just fascinating, right? It's almost hard to to empathize with that conception, but it showed that movement was the key by which they understood space. So, just by way of example, if you were to say show um, a stakeholder, a project stakeholder, a client, a a section view, and maybe there's a stair running up through it, their understanding of that stair is going to be very limited. Yeah, they, they are not going to be able to conceive of it separate from you know, the rest of the image as effectively as someone who's really versed in architectural design. But there's an assumption made by the a lot of times by the designer or the person doing the, the presentation that, every, again, because I understand this, everybody does. And it, because it is the day-to-day vocabulary that I use in an office, and everybody there knows it too. Exactly. It's all, and that's what they see. And they've also, as you were saying, they have that context, right? They've seen that design generate over time. And, and so for, they really understand, oh, that stair connection has the, the, these particular flights and it goes up to between these levels. It connects through this particular, say, you know, the, onto the floor plate at this point. But the, the person has seen that for the first time, that stakeholder has none of that context. And so how do you very rapidly create that, that sense of understanding? And what you would do is the same thing you did for these individuals that were seeing for the first time, which was movement. How do you actually move through that space? And you're not going to do that with just a drawing. You're going to do that through a real-time rendering, you know, and ideally maybe an immersive one where you can really get that sense of depth and perception and, and multiple angles that you can then stitch together mentally to create that, that composite image in your head. The other thing that was fascinating is we found that when individuals move through space, they don't, it's not a passive exercise on the part of the brain, but there's actually a lot of instinctual activity in the form of map making that's happening on the part of the individual. Essentially, as they move through space, the one's brain is firing at very regular intervals to create a complex grid of markers. And that grid is then aligned with other neurons that fire that essentially it, they call it like a, a place cell. It's like a flag in the ground. 
And that one stays in one localized location. So you use these two pieces of information, this grid and a, what they call grid cells and this place cells, along with other neurons of fire, as you say, go along the border of a, of a building or what have you, that create the border cells. They're all very logically named. This is like a, I'm trying to think of an analogy here, but this is like a, an analog photogrammetry happening. Exactly. And it's happening in your brain. And so you have this very complex exercise that's happening. And it only happens through the exploration of space that you do this. So this is why when maybe the first time you walk through a building, you're like, wow, this is confusing. And then after a week, you got to figure it out because you've created this map, mental map, and you created this grid, you understand these borders, you have maybe some sort of anchor point that your mind created. Maybe it was the entrance, maybe it's the coffee machine, who knows, that you really know. And you're not going to be able to do that through a drawing, but you're going to be able to only do that through this sort of this type of immersion through maybe VR or through a walkthrough, through a rendering that really was, I mean, that was literally impossible, you know, not that long ago to be able to do that in architectural practice. So that's the other piece that we found that was really fascinating is that the way in which we actually create that mental map is incredibly important. And we don't experience buildings um, snapshot at a time, right? We, we experience them by moving through them. You know, there actually really are that immersive environment. So to create that, that full understanding of a design, that type of movement through space is incredibly important. And, and honestly, you're not going to get that by, say, you know, showing a BIM model and kind of scrolling through it. Um, you, you need a, a much more detailed model an immersive model. And that gets to the other piece there, which is about really about engagement. How do you have sort of an emotional engagement with a design? And one of the ways you do that is by adding detail that resonates with people. So, you know, whether it be, you know, adding assets and furniture and things like that, uh, or ones that start to make um, sort of this place look like home, you know, it's a comforting environment. It's one that, that resonates with them, but also you can do it through providing a mechanism of, of actual design decision-making. Um, you know, is this a place where a person can provide feedback and they say, hey, let's move this window a little bit. And one of the beautiful things about real-time rendering is that I said, it's always dangerous, you know, for the client to want to play designer, but you can let them play designer and say, well, let's move this window a little bit. Well, then you can have someone driving the BIM model. You do it. They can see the difference. And all of a sudden now they're invested on a completely different level. And you want them to do it then in the process and not later anyway, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You want to do it then. And that's the same thing now. When you think about what, what gets people excited, you know, uh, even in, in everyday life, obviously intuitively you say maybe what's the hot new nightclub well, or, or why people like going to Las Vegas. There's a visual spectacle. There's things that engage the, the eye um, and make you excited about it. And that's the same thing that you're doing here in the context of design through that type of engagement and then the last piece, I think, is is really one in which you're about stitching all of these together into that composite of of really bringing the design to that end user and allowing them to explore, allowing them to to see the building from multiple perspectives and move through it, um, allowing them to have that emotional engagement. And you put all those pieces together, and all of a sudden, now you have a truly inclusive design process. You have a way that isn't communicating intuitively just because it's real-time rendering, but you have it communicating intuitively because it's resonating with all the things that allow for a person on a cognitive level to really understand space. I think one of the downsides that I've seen in this process is the human factor of being influenced by others in the group. As Typically, this happens in a group setting. It doesn't always happen in a group setting, but in a group setting, you know, if you've got various stakeholders in the room at the same time, 
and there is a quote unquote leader, you know, it could be a president of whatever association or the, the, the campus or whatever. If that person has an amazing time in this immersive experience, it automatically influences everybody else to have an amazing time. And if they are on, on the on the flip side of that, if they are like, there's no way in hell I'm putting on those goggles because I'm going to get sick, then it automatically like influences the rest of the group. And it, it's interesting to think about it kind of from that psychological standpoint, when you are the one in charge of um, basically making sure decisions are made, right? And you feel like the best way for decisions to get made is for people to have this experience and they don't want to have this experience for various reasons. Like the way that we present it, like if it's on a two-dimensional screen or if it's in 3D, like the, the absolute worst experience that that I've seen and, and heard of through other people's experiences is when a top-level decision maker is watching the screen of what somebody is looking at in VR. Right. Because Absolutely. it's like it is a wild ride. It It is a sickening ride. It has nothing to do with what the person in VR is actually experiencing because it's like in there, it's like locked. Right. That it feels natural when you're in it. But to watch it on a 2D screen on the outside can totally turn somebody off. And there and then the rest of the group is like, I don't want to do it either. Right. Because they vo- they're very vocal about it as this top level executive you know, they, they typically are the, the most vocal. Absolutely. And it's interesting that you, you put that forward because that's absolutely a challenge. And I would say one is just because the tool exists, it's not a panacea for sure. Um, but also that all of those things, that, that type of exploration, that type of, of mental engagement, um, things like that, that can all happen in VR or not in VR. And so it's always good. I imagine, you know, say coming from practice, when you went to an interview, I remember we would even bring a projector for certain interviews, right? You know, you, you came absolutely locked and loaded for every contingency. And I think that's the same thing here is you do want to communicate on the level of the, the client is comfortable because if they're not comfortable, then you're not getting anywhere. But it would be an unusual client that wants just the 2D stuff. But maybe, you know, there's, when I talk to different design firms, there's some that like VR, there's some that, that think VR is, is a disaster and only like AR. And I find that, you know, that's good. They have a design process that maybe tunes into one type of technology. But you bring up another piece I think that's really important that wasn't necessarily part of, of that narrative about how people understand space, but maybe there's, and maybe it's missing, which is that people understand space in the context of, of essentially that collaboration or, or how, how, they, how the group thinks of that space. And maybe that speaks to what that next evolution is in the context of real-time rendering um, and design, which is um, about that collaborative experience. And you can have a collaborative experience, maybe if you're all looking at the same screen, but right now you're not necessarily having it in an immersive collaborative experience yet. Um, You're not taking the guided tour through VR and things like that. And and there's a couple of reasons why. I mean, a lot of them are technological. Some of them are cost, you know, they, right? There was a time where having that, that Oculus in the office, that was the special Oculus. You only had the fancy computer to run it and so on and so forth. But all those things are coming down. And maybe we're going to see a time in which um, that maybe that's the missing piece there is, is that collaboration um, that really helps generate that, that community understanding. And I'd say, absolutely, I've been in plenty of meetings where there is that that key designer and also design reviews or crits, you know, for students. You mentioned, uh, you know, teaching. 
I've seen ones where you have a really strong personality that dominates the room. I think I, I'm not a fan of that situation, um, to be honest. I, I can certainly, I know why it happens. But maybe there's an opportunity in the context of some of this technology also to place everyone um, in more equal footing. And uh, I'm not sure how that maybe that can be done, maybe through some of those those VR type environments in which everyone gets to have have a say and and recognize that everyone's going to communicate differently um, how they feel. There's definitely technical hurdles, but multi-person VR experiences are pretty incredible because you can, especially with like spatial audio cues to actually make it feel very spatial and make it like the one-to-one scale is a game changer i think those things are in going in the right direction and hopefully they do get easier and easier and more bulletproof because like the setup the it side of things is definitely an issue especially in remote situations like many people have found themselves over the last couple of years it's like yeah multi-person vr let's meet in the model would be fantastic but then you're relying on everybody's technical chops to actually make it happen on their own. And that's very, that's another. Yeah. And there's really prosaic things too, like just the uh, IT department's procurement budget doesn't allow for the purchasing of those kind of computers. I mean, it could be something as basic as that. Yeah. I, another kind of quick successful thing that I've seen, and I think it was the team at Archeo that did this, which is a tool that allows you to actually design in VR. But what they did was they have like a separate, there's obviously the camera quote-unquote camera, if everybody's familiar with real-time rendering, they know what we're talking about, of the first-person point of view who's in the thing doing the stuff. Um, And then there's like this television usually hooked up to that, and you're seeing what they're seeing. So everybody else is like watching the person design in VR, and it's (laughs) you got to be able to to, uh, be very vulnerable in that situation. But what they did, which was, I thought, really a tricky, cool thing, was they had another camera like attached constrained to that first person point of view with like some kind of motion averager on it so it smoothed it out it was like it was like hooking up a gopro to your bike right where the the gimbal yeah. yeah and so everybody watching it was not getting sick because it was kind of an averaged out version of what that person was outputting to a two-dimensional screen in their 3d in their full-on immersive experience so kind of hard to explain but hopefully hopefully that came across but i thought that was pretty intuitive well i think that they guess to one of the things that is important about all of these technologies is understanding that those types of details uh really matter they seem prosaic yeah uh, you know latency issues oh how many frames per second do you have things like that they seem really silly but they actually are are fundamentally important and some of the most fundamental challenges that we are we're wrestling with as we try to to bring this technology into uh the hands of different users and it is amazing how yeah those are so important because they can make or break that whole session which the project's life could depend on it seems like such a fragile stack of <laughs> things held together with twine and and gum but it's uh, it is interesting as as things progress, it obviously gets better and better and easier and more bulletproof. And I think I think but it all highlights that a lot of this does come down to the fundamental ways in which we see and perceive. You know, those aren't things that have to do with the quality of the design. They actually have to do with how we function as humans. And you're not going to change that. So you have to work within that sort of constraint or as like the Eames would say, you know, the constraints are opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that seems like a fantastic place to wrap up this conversation i i think that this this could lead in so many different directions maybe you'd be open to a another one at another time but i, I appreciate your time today absolutely this has been a wonderful conversation and uh 
I do look forward to a part two. Maybe we can start talking about uh, what this all looks like when it hits the road. Awesome. Yeah. So where can people follow along with, with your work and, and what you guys are doing at Enscape? Uh, well, absolutely. Um, you know, if you go to Enscape.com, you'll see we have a blog pretty active on, on all the social media and also all the, you know, the various speaking events and whatnot. But also I'll be doing um, some webinars coming up uh, talking about trends. And so you can all watch that and then at the end of the year, figure out how wrong I was. But uh, that'll also be posted at Enscape. So really, if you follow us, you know, all the usual platforms or Enscape3D.com, you'll find us. So Okay. I will put links to all of that in the show notes so that people can find you. Again, thank you for your time. And this has been a wonderful conversation. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Troxel Podcast. And once again, I would like to thank ArcIT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at GabledMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E Troxel. Talk to you soon.